Impact offers a global community of the world's top business coaches. We strive to empower our coaches and clients alike to achieve their extraordinary goals. Today, we host David Friedman, CEO of CultureWise, to talk about his second book, Culture by Design. This episode will be a part one and part two combination. We will learn about David's big idea in part one, followed by David's personal journey as a CEO in part two. Hello, everyone. This is Keith Cup, founder of Gravitas Impact Premium Coaches, a worldwide community of experienced, skilled, and purpose-driven advisors who help CEOs and their leadership teams get results and live their purpose through their business leadership. Today, we have David Friedman, author of Culture by Design and Fundamentally Different, to talk about designing and building great cultures. David, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Keith. Great to be with you. David, let's get right down to it here. What's the big idea you would like to share with the listening audience to get us off to a fast start this afternoon? Well, here's what I'd say, Keith. Then this will surprise some of your audience, but values aren't as important as you think they are. Interesting. So when we talk about values, core values, correct? Core values, yes. So the values of an organization are not as important as you would think. Let's bookmark that big idea for a moment. And David, tell us a little bit about your background and what gives you the foundation and the platform to talk about culture. Sure, Keith. So I spent 27 years as the CEO of an employee benefits consulting company in the Philadelphia area. And I grew that company from a couple people to well over 100 people. And during the years that I was growing that company, we were, we were really successful we, we, in almost every dimension you can look at. We were seven or eight times named one of the best places to work in the Philadelphia region. We were seven or eight times named one of the fastest growing companies. We won service awards and quality awards. We were very, very successful. But I would tell you, Keith, that the foundation of everything that we did, I mean, all of our success was based upon the culture that we had created in that company. It was all of our success. And as the CEO of the company, I did a lot of things in a very intentional way to make that happen. I eventually, after all those years, ended up selling our company to a large multi-billion dollar publicly held company and worked there for a couple of years as you know, running my old company as a division of this bigger entity. And then I ended up retiring from that industry. And when I retired from that industry, I ended up writing a book about the, the first of those books that you referred to, Fundamentally Different. I actually have three now, but Fundamentally Different was the first book. And I wrote that book as a way of capturing the things that we had done in our company from personal experience that led to all that success with our culture. And, I, and I, I'm always honest about this. Actually, this is kind of surprising, but I wrote that book largely as a closure step, as a way of bringing closure to that career so I could move on and do something totally different. But what ended up happening is people got a lot of value from the book. That book led to people asking me to speak. As people heard me speak, people said, hey, that's pretty interesting. Could I hire you to help me do that in my company? And next thing I knew, I was in the second career. So to answer your, your question in a briefer way, in the last seven or eight years, I have given more than 500 workshops on this material for thousands and thousands of CEOs. I've helped hundreds and hundreds of companies to implement the methodology that I have created. And so this is very organic material in that I created it myself in my own company, but I've now taught it and implemented it in 
again, taught it to thousands of leaders and implemented hundreds and hundreds of companies. So it's a tried and true methodology that I teach. And David, that's one thing I already appreciate about you, even before the podcast is 27 years running a company gives you not only domain credibility for the topic of culture, but as a CEO building a seven, six to seven times fastest growth company. I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit later, but let's come back to your provocative statement. Values may not be as important as you think they are. Talk about that. Yeah. So when we talk about building a culture, so we all know that the culture in any organization, I don't care whether it's a company or a sports team or a family or any other organization, that the culture in the organization has this enormous influence over everything that happens. It just affects every part of, of people's performance. And my point of view is if we understand that, and, and you don't have to have a you know, a degree as a rocket scientist to know this. We all know from our own personal experiences that the culture of the environment has this enormous influence. If we understand that, what that suggests to me is then as a leader, as a CEO of a company, if I had some way that I could, oh, purposely, systematically create the kind of environment, the kind of culture that would cause our people to perform at the highest level, well, that would be a pretty smart thing to do. And what I teach people is how to go about doing that. Now, to get to the provocative question, as we go about purposely designing, creating, and embedding the culture that we really want that will lead to the highest performance in our company, there are a number of steps that are necessary in order to do that. And, and I organize the steps to do that around a framework that I call the eight-step framework. Eight different things, if we do these eight things, this is how you purposely create the culture that you want. The first and most important step in that entire process is also the most obvious, but it's the one that leads to the provocative statement. And that is that we've got to be able to define with tremendous clarity exactly what we want our culture to be. And the reason I say this is obvious, of course, is how could we possibly go about intentionally, purposely creating a specific culture if you as a leader can't tell me, well, what the heck is the culture you're trying to create in the first place? So we've got to be able to define it with clarity. Now, the way most companies go about doing that is almost all of your listeners, if they're CEOs, have probably been through some exercise, maybe even facilitated by a consultant, where they have are tried to articulate a vision and a mission and the stereotypical set of core values. And they do this because it sounds like a perfectly logical thing to do. Everybody says, how can you run your company if you can't define the core values that are important to you? Well, here's where I differ. I make a really big deal about a, a language distinction. And this may at first sound like semantics, but I'm gonna show you why it's not just semantics. I make a really big deal about the difference between what I call values and what I call behaviors. Mm -hmm. And they're very different and their difference is really important. So let me explain what I mean by that. A value to me is an abstract concept. So examples of values are things like quality, integrity, loyalty, respect, service, innovation. These are ideas, they're notions, concepts. A behavior in contrast is an action. It's something that I can literally see people doing. 
So let me give you some examples of behaviors. Some of the behaviors I teach in my own company are concepts like honor commitments. That's something you actually do. Practice blameless problem solving. Get clear on expectations. Be a fanatic about response time. Listen generously. Do what's best for the customer. These are actions. These are things that people do. So a value is an abstract idea. A behavior is an action. In parts of speech, you might think of it like a value is a noun and a behavior is a verb. It's a thing versus an action. Now, why is this relevant? Well, here's why. The problem with the way most companies create their core values is that they tend to be so abstract that they mean too many different things to too many different people. Mm -hmm. And therefore they become very difficult to operationalize. So let me give you a really simple example. One of the core values that I will see in many organizations, and some of your listeners may have this in their list of core values, is they'll have the value for respect. We should all respect each other. And that sounds like a perfectly wonderful idea. I mean, who would argue with that, especially in these times? And yet, what does that word mean? It means a lot of different things to different people. If you grew up in an inner city gang, your definition of what it looks like to respect somebody or perhaps to diss them could be completely different than what it might mean in your family. Or think about regional differences. Some of your listeners who perhaps grew up in the, the South probably were raised as children that when you speak to an adult, you call them sir or ma'am. It's disrespectful not to do that. Do that in the Northeast where I live. That's just kind of weird. It has nothing <laughs> to do with respect at all. I was with a, a, um, I was with a, a college friend of mine who is a school superintendent of a large school district in Ohio. And he was telling me he was very frustrated that the teachers in his school district were angry with him because they, did, they felt disrespected because they didn't get a large enough pay increase. He looks at this and says, that's a budget issue. That has nothing to do with respect at all, but to them, it's a respect issue. Mm -hmm. So to simply say one of our core values is respect sounds wonderful on the wall or on the website, but it's very difficult to operationalize. It is very difficult to coach people about their values. Behaviors though, because they're so much more action oriented are far easier to coach, to teach, to, to give people feedback about. They're easier to operationalize. So I would tell you that it's actually much more effective in terms of really embedding the culture you want to describe or define your culture not in terms of this stereotypical, broad, nebulous set of core values, but rather in terms of the set of behaviors that you say and your leadership says, if we could get our people to do this more consistently, we're gonna be more successful than ever. And that's why values are not nearly as important as, they may, as you may think or have been led to believe. David, let's, let's drill down on this a little bit. Um, we do an annual voice of the CEO survey <clears throat> And our, 2000, or our 2020 survey um, showed that one of the biggest gaps in the market, uh, the frustrations of CEOs, is how do you execute upon strategy? Hey, I've got a great vision, but I can't get it implemented. So let's go to the next level. Once you've worked with a company to design their culture with very specifically stated uh, behaviors, how do they actually put those into work day to day? And tell us a story if you can to illustrate. 
Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll describe, actually, I'll start with the story. So let me start with the story, Keith, of how I learned all this and, and then how this now gets translated into what we teach. So the story for this is that I had in, in my first company uh, that we talked about before, we were always known for amazing service. That's what set us apart. And I had this idea one day that I wanted to plan some kind of an activity to get us to think bigger and more boldly about what amazing service could look like. So what I did is I closed the office one day, I took my entire staff to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Philadelphia. We had lunch there and then we were gonna spend the afternoon in a meeting room doing some brainstorming about amazing service. And I chose there, of course, as you might guess, because I wanted to be in the environment to kind of soak up Ritz-Carlton-ness if there was such a word as that. Mm -hmm. And at the time that I did this, I didn't know that much about them other than they were an amazing company. And I suspected it couldn't have been by accident. There must have been, oh, processes that helped them to deliver the service with such consistency. So I asked them if they would share with us over lunch some of the things that they do. So long story short, they shared with me two things, a lot of things, but two things in particular that I learned that day. This goes back 17 or 18 years ago. But two things that I learned that day that I would tell you, I wouldn't be exaggerating if I said that they changed the course of the rest of my career. They led to everything that I teach. The first thing I learned about is something that they call the Ritz-Carlton basics. So Ritz-Carlton has 20 behaviors that they teach that define how they operate. As a simple example, if you were at a Ritz-Carlton and you asked, where's the men's room? They would never say, you know, go down the hall, turn right, you'll see it back by the elevator they would escort you back to the men's room. It's mm -hmm. one of their basics. So anyway, they have these 20 basics and they have them a little laminated card and they're numbered one through 20. I thought that was interesting, but the far more interesting thing, and this goes to the operational question, is how they practice this. And so here's what they do. Every single day in every Ritz-Carlton property in the world, in every department and in every shift, the team members get together at the beginning of the shift and they gather around and they have this 10 or 12 minute meeting called the daily lineup. And the first thing that happens in their daily lineup each day is they talk about the basic of the day. So remember I said, there's 20 of these. If I was in a Ritz Carlton property today and we happen to be on day number one, all day long today in every department, every shift, the team members are getting together at the beginning of the shift and they're kicking off their brief meeting talking about basic number one. What does it mean? How do we practice it? What could we do better about it? And so on. Tomorrow, every single department, every shift is getting together at the beginning of the shift and they're kicking off their daily lineup talking about basic number two. And the next day, three and four and five and so on till they get to 20 days. And at the end of 20 days, they go back to the beginning and they do it over and over and over again every day of their entire career. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if today's day number 11, it's day number 11 in every Ritz-Carlton property in the world today. Wow. They've got 40,000 people all over the world and every one of them today is on the same basic. So anyway, I heard that all those years ago and it got me thinking, that's pretty interesting. I wonder what that tells me about human behavior, about people, and more importantly, how could I apply those concepts in my company? So I, cre I went home, I thought about, well, if I had behaviors, what would my behaviors be? And I created a list of behaviors I gave them a name, Ritz-Carlton had basics. I call mine fundamentals. That's the name, just my nomenclature for behaviors because I thought they were fundamental to our success. So I created these fundamentals and I rolled them out in my company 
And what we decided, rather than a daily lineup, I was an office, I don't really have departments and shifts. So I thought what would be more effective for us is, and pretty much all of our clients do this, is we take one each week and we focus on it all week through a series of what I call rituals. So week number one, all week long, everybody is thinking about working on focusing on fundamental number one through a series of activities. And I'll give you an example in just a moment. The second week, everybody in the company all week long is focused on fundamental number two. And the week after that, three and four and five, I happen to have 30 in my company, which will probably freak out some of your listeners. <laughs> but at the end of 30 weeks, we go back to the beginning and we do it over and over and over again forever. So let me give you a simple example of what we do each week. There's a lot of things, but one of them is every time we have a meeting in our company, whether it's a project team meeting, a department meeting, a leadership meeting, even a Zoom meeting, if we have a meeting in our company this week, every single one of those meetings, the first agenda item of the meeting is the fundamental of the week. And we spend the first three to five minutes talking about it. What does it mean? How do we practice it? What can we do better about it? Three, four, five minutes, we don't want to take over the meeting, but we just start every meeting. So just like some people start a meal with a prayer or some people, you know, when we were kids in school, we used to say the Pledge of Allegiance. We have a meeting, we start with the fundamental of the week. It's what we do. So we create a number of different, I, my phraseology for is I call them rituals, routines, practices, a number of different rituals that give us multiple opportunities all week long to think about work on focus practice this week's fundamental. So if we do that this week with number one and next week with two and the next week with three, and we keep cycling through them, sooner or later, these are just gonna to start to become internalized in our people. So to your question, Keith, you know, in most companies, yes, they create their core values or even if they have behaviors, they're mostly on the wall or on the website, but there's no way to operationalize them. The key to operationalizing them is to roll it out in engaged ways and then to focus on one at a time. Folk, the, the intensity of focus on one at a time gives us a deeper level of learning. And if we keep cycling through them over and over and over again, they're eventually going to become embedded or internalized by our people. That's the real core idea. And, and so just doing a little math, uh, your team will encounter um, uh, twice a year, roughly, um, one of the 30 items and Ritz-Carlton roughly three times a year. So you're embedding that into the reticular activation system in the back of the brain, and it becomes part of your team members' operating systems. Is that kind of part of the thought? That's absolutely the thought. I'll add just one nuance to that. Um, and that is that while we maybe have the focus on fundamental number one this week, my company actually is on number three this week. We're in through mm -hmm. another cycle. But while we may have a focus on that particular fundamental this week, we're talking about all the fundamentals all the time. A yes. situation comes up that relates to another fundamental. We're talking about it. But the larger point is absolutely true that it becomes part of our brain. It's just, it becomes internalized. It's just the way we look at the world. It becomes the frame of reference we have for how we look at and deal with situations and that's the real goal is to get this internalized. Now, David, I'm uh, anticipating several CEOs and even coaches or leaders listening in are probably uh, thinking about the question uh, on the, the fundamentals. Um, do those come from the culture and the team building those? 
is it uh, sourced from your team members or does it come from the leadership team? How did you actually choose the 30 items? Where did they come from? Yes, that's a great question. So uh, and I'll, I would say in my company, my original ones, and then I'll talk about how we do this with hundreds of other companies, but in my own original company, when I dreamt all this stuff up all those years ago, um, they were things I sat down right after we came home from the Ritz-Carlton. It was a Friday. That evening, I sat down and I started to think about, well, what are some of the things that I'm always talking about, that I'm ranting about sometimes, the things that I believe this is important and I'm always trying to teach, some of which I had written previously, others I had ranted about but had never codified in any particular way. And over actually about a weekend, I wrote all these. I sent it out to my leadership team just to give me any feedback. And then I polished and edited them. But let's talk about the process for companies and, and your listeners and how they might approach this. So I am a, I think that one of the biggest mistakes, I might've used this as your, uh, your question, but, um, but I'll say it this way, that one of the biggest mistakes that I observe companies make when they do this type of work is they make this far too collaborative a process. Mm, interesting. The reason that I say that's a mistake is that ultimately, to me, this is a leadership function. If you are a CEO, it is one of your most important responsibilities to be the author of, well, what's the vision? What is, the, what is this extraordinary company we're trying to build? Now, I'm going to just sort of add a, a level of nuance to this. So this is principally, in my view, a leadership function. Having said that, most of your listeners probably are CEOs of companies in which they have a senior leadership team. I am a big advocate for the inclusion of the senior leadership team, but I'm gonna be very specific in my language around this. I'm a big advocate for the inclusion of the senior leadership team for their contribution to the CEO's thinking. In other words, we're including these leaders not to make them feel good. We're including them because they're smart, because they've got really good ideas and their good ideas could influence my thoughts. But at the end of the day, this is not a majority vote. It's not a consensus. It's not, let's make sure everybody gets a little bit of what they'd like to see. No, if I'm the CEO, it's what I want to build, but I'm influenced by the really smart people on my team. Now, what we're, and what we're definitely not doing, and I see this frequently, is I see companies that will go through this exercise where they will survey all their employees and ask them, well, what do you think the values are around here? Mm -hmm. At some level, and I'm gonna say this, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, I don't care what they think the values are around here. And when I say that, I don't mean that in as harsh a way as it sounds, but I say this is a design function. We are designing the extraordinary company that we're trying to build. We're not designing it around all the employees we happen to have on March 24th or whatever date it is and what they would like to see. Some of them may not even be in our company in the future. We're designing around your vision as a leader about what you're trying to build. That's what we're trying to do. Now, I'll add just one other piece to that, Keith, and that is that the, the primary reason in my observation that leaders will over-collaborate about this is actually a good reason. There's just a fault in the logic. And the good reason for over-collaborating is because leaders will say, I wanna get greater buy-in and engagement on the part of my workforce. If I can't get people to buy in, then what difference does it make what my vision is? 
And it's absolutely good thinking. The mistake in the logic though, is to think that the only or best way to get them to buy in is if they were all authors of it or contributed to the authoring of it. We actually get amazing levels of buy-in by how it gets rolled out or introduced into the workforce. So once we've developed a set of fundamentals, it gets rolled out to the workforce in highly interactive, engaged, small group discussions that gets everybody excited and motivated and participating. And they think this is wonderful and they didn't have to author it. So the goal of buy-in is absolutely an essential goal. It's just that they don't have to be authors of it in order to buy in. Excellent. David, in our last uh, few minutes together, um, let's, let's activate this in the moment. So we have leaders listening in. What one thing would you want them to do to either start this journey to activate the behaviors in the culture design their culture to be very specific and actionable? What, what what's the first step you'd suggest today? I would say the first step, Keith, is to define the behaviors that are most important to them. And I'll give you just, and your listeners, just a couple of suggestions on how to think about that. So there are several questions I like to use to spur the brainstorming in a leader's head about, well, what are the behaviors that are important? So think about this for your listeners. What are some of the things that you as a CEO often find yourself saying, gosh, if I could just get my people to do this more consistently, we'd be even more successful than we are today. What are the things that drive you crazy? If this drives you nuts when you see people doing it, what's the opposite of that? What would they be doing if they weren't doing that thing that drives you crazy? What are the things that you sometimes go on rants about? And if you're not sure, ask those around you. There goes Keith or whoever. He's on one of his kicks again. You know, you wouldn't rant about it if it wasn't important. That's why you're ranting about it. Here's one of my favorite questions. Typically, in every department in our company, we usually have one or more people who we wish we could clone. The people you say, boy, if I had two more guys like that or three more women like her, we'd be amazing. Picture those amazing people on your team who you wish you could clone. What do they do that makes you want to clone them? Oh, you should see her. She always does, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, write that down. Those are probably pretty good things. Sometimes, sometimes I find that picturing real people makes it easier for us to think of these mm -hmm. instead of it just being this abstract exercise in our brain. So I would say the first thing, Keith, that, that you're listeners should do is define in clear behaviors, the, the behaviors that, that they say, if we could get our people doing this more consistently, we'd be more successful than we've ever been. Use those questions as a brainstorming kickoff to think about those. Okay. Very practical, very actionable and straightforward. So uh, David, uh, we're going to go ahead and finish up part one now, and then uh, we will go into part two for listeners. Uh, Part two, we're going to talk to David about his personal purpose and what makes him tick. On these podcasts, we love to get into the heart of the content, which we've done, and we're appreciative for David over the last 25 minutes. And on part two, we'll find out what makes you tick. David, thank you so much. My pleasure. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to part two today with CEO, author, thought leader, David Friedman, who has written the book called Culture by Design. And David, before we end uh, part two, I'd like you to talk about your third book. But 
as we step into part two, we want to ask David, David, what makes you tick? What is your purpose? How have you aligned that with your business? And then where in the world does that come from in your life? Great questions. So I would say, um, I'll start by saying that much of what I have created and have done over the last oh, seven to 10 years on its surface may feel or even appear to be accidental in how it developed. And yet in retrospect, it looks like a bit of a plan. So let me explain further. So I mentioned before when you were asking about my background that I had run this company, had sold it, wasn't sure what I was gonna do next. And when I retired from my first industry, I knew I was too young to really be retired. It wasn't my intent to sit around and eat bonbons for the rest of my life. And so I wasn't sure what was next. And I just figured, you know what, I'll just take my time and I trust in the world that I will discover my purpose. I will discover where I should be next. And if I stay tuned into that and have conversations and stay open to it, that the world will show me my path. And I decided to write that first book fundamentally different, as I mentioned earlier, mostly as a closure step. It was not launching anything, it wasn't intended to. It was, I tend to be very forward thinking and I knew that if I don't write that book now and I get into some other career, I'll be moving behind, moving past that and I'll never write that book because you know that's my old stuff. So I better sit down and write this book before it's done. So I wrote the book and then one thing led to another and led to another, et cetera. When I look back and I think, wow, I'm actually doing now exactly what I should be doing. I am doing my purpose, which I'll describe more in just a moment, but it feels to me like what I'm doing is the best use of my particular gifts and talents. And I think, I, I believe that most of us, and I don't come at this from a religious perspective, though many might, but I think that, that at some level, for most of us, the ideal world is where we are somehow employing our unique gifts and talents. When we're working in the zone of our gifts and talents, everything goes easier, we go further, we accomplish more, we make a greater impact or contribution to the world when we happen to be there. And yet for most people, myself included, we struggle sometimes to figure out either what are my gifts and talents, or we struggle to figure out how could I best use those in some productive way? In my particular case, I stumbled upon it, even though it looks more planned, but I stumbled upon it and discovered that this work that I'm doing and the material that I share and the way that I go about doing it, it has just enormous influence on, on individuals and on organizations, which is very gratifying. And it's the best use of what my gifts and talents are. When I think about, so what are those gifts and talents? Um, for me, I would say my, and they're related, my, my two biggest gifts, and they're very related, are number one, my clarity of thought, which hopefully your listeners have picked up on. I tend to be very logical and very clear thinking. Mm -hmm. And what goes with that is that I have an ability to make things that for some people feel complicated. I have an ability to simplify, simplify, simplify to take things that for some are murky and confusing and nebulous and distill it down quickly and easily to, oh, this isn't that complicated. It's step one, two, three, here's how we do this. And so I'm a good teacher. Um, and so the best gifts that I have are my ability 
in this particular case to take a subject matter like culture, which has enormous influence for people and distill it down to something that makes it easy and accessible and doable and practical. And it's a wonderful gift to be able to give people. When I, when I do a workshop and CEOs in the room say, oh my God, that's the first time somebody's ever made this topic so clear and simple and actionable. Where have you been all this time? That's a very <laughs> gratifying moment. And I get to do that virtually every day is to be able to bring that kind of clarity to this topic that's exciting because of, of how transformative ultimately that is. It's not just, certainly a part of it is the personal satisfaction of the light bulb moment going off for a CEO. But more important than that is what happens after the light bulb goes off is the CEO actually implements something and we can help them with that. That is game changing. That's transformative for their business. Many of our clients say that the work that they've implemented with us is the single most impactful thing they've done in the history of their company. And that's very gratifying to see that happen. David, I wanna go upstream and downstream. Downstream, you're married to Catherine for 36 years, but you have a son and a daughter uh, that both teach in their careers. And you had shared that your daughter's a second grade teacher, if I have that right. That's right. That's downstream. Now let's go upstream. Uh, you've got a couple of generations of teachers. Where did that clarity and that teaching talent come from? Where does that spring from in your earlier life? Mm, that's a good question. Well, my mother was a teacher. She was a kindergarten teacher. Uh, my father, um, my father was in my first business with me for a number of years, um, and later became an attorney after he retired. Believe it or not. Um, so I think education, I think at some level, education has always been a part of my upbringing. Um, I grew up in a fairly traditional Jewish family and in Jewish families, typically, not always, but frequently, there's a high emphasis placed on, on teaching, on learning, on mm -hmm. intellectual exchange. So at the dinner table, it would be common for us to be debating different points of view, not as an argument, but just as intellectual exercise to think about the world of ideas is a world that I grew up in and was very comfortable in. And so I think part of it, to answer your question, part of it was that kind of a upbringing around concepts, thoughts, ideas. But I think, I think also I think we're each born with different things. And I think I happen to be born with a very logical brain um, that not everybody's born. Some people are born with the ability to write music. I wish I could write music. That would be wonderful. I don't know how people do that. And some people look at my ability to see things so clearly and say, how do you do that? I don't know. It seems pretty easy to me. Just like for the musician, it seems so darn easy to come up with a song. And I can't fathom how people do that. So I think you know some of that is just genetics. Yeah, it's the concept of unconscious competence that is the intersection of a talent and a skill well-refined. Um, I, I think I, I believe that. And, and what I would add to that, you know, is that there are many people who, who have that unconscious competence, but I think the best of them make that very conscious and, and yes. to use your word, refine that. And mm -hmm. I think that has always been one of my gifts or, or, or certainly one of my styles is that I've always been very reflective. Um, and so I think back to my first career as a CEO, 
And I think you hear people say that, you know, you learn a lot from your mistakes. I didn't actually, I don't say this in a boastful way. I didn't make that many mistakes. I had a pretty good instinct for leadership, Mm -hmm. but I think you can learn a lot from your successes if you're thoughtful and reflective. So Mm -hmm. if you, I, I would do things and think, wow, that worked pretty well. That was pretty good. I wonder why that worked well. There must be some principles of leadership, of organizational behavior that are at play here that I wasn't doing on a conscious level. I was just being instinctive. But if I could stop and I could reflect upon what just occurred and discern, well, what are the principles that are underlying them, that underlying these actions? Because there are leadership principles here. If I could stop and I could reflect upon those and discern what those are and articulate them, then I could begin to teach those to the people around me for whom this might not be as instinctive. And I think that's a lot of what I've done throughout my career, originally as a leader and and later in, in this second phase of my career, is I think I've been gifted with good instincts about leadership and organizational behavior, but more important than those instincts is the, is the ability to reflect upon that and discern and articulate underlying principles so that they could be taught to other people. Mm-hmm. And that's the gift, I suppose. And, and so, David, um, as we uh, begin to wrap up here in a few minutes, speak to the younger CEOs, the women and men listening in, as a seasoned CEO for 27 years and having done workshops with CEOs and their teams, over 530 of them, and probably more than that. Um, what, what is the one thing you would want a younger, newer, developing CEO to have in mind that you wish you would have had when you were a new CEO, or you just want to share with them as we close? I would say that I think it is incredibly important as a CEO to operate and make decisions within what I'm gonna call a philosophical framework. And what I mean when I use that phrase within a philosophical framework, I think a big part of, and my experience is a big part of what you, I'm gonna speak right now to the CEOs listening, that I, I think a big part of what your followers want from you is consistency. They want to know what to expect. They want to know how we think about things, how we make decisions. And so when you have a philosophical framework of this is what's important to us, this is the way we approach things, and a set of fundamentals does that for you, that this is the way we think about decision-making. This is a way we think about relationships. When you've got a philosophical framework so that decisions that you make are consistent with that, it gives your team and your staff this consistency, this reliability that they know what they can count on. When I, if I'm one of your followers and, and your decisions depend upon what mood you're in, and I don't know, is Keith in a good mood or a bad mood today? Because that's going to determine how he responds to this customer issue. Boy, that's a hard place for me as a follower to mm-hmm. operate. But if I know that no matter what happens, Keith is always going to be, you know, he's got a true north. And he's got a philosophy about how he operates. And every day, Keith is consistent as he can be. It makes it easier for me to go about doing my work because I'm not wondering what to expect. 
So I think one of the most important things you can do as a young leader is to establish a philosophical framework for how you think about decision-making and what's important to you and be consistent with that. David, you've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro twice in your life. Uh, last uh, input, please. Why in the world did you do that? <laughs> Why did I climb Mount Kilimanjaro? Um, that's a good question. Well, the first time I did it, um, I, you know, I, I started to do, I'll give you the short version of this, but um, when I was, I, I never did any kind of hiking or camping as a, as a youngster. And when I was an adult, I, I did my first outward bound outdoor wilderness experience. And I thought it was such an interesting experience that I started to almost every year go away for a week or 10 days or somewhere to do something that was physically challenging outdoors in a beautiful environment where I could be far enough away from the rest of my life that I could contemplate and reflect and think and prioritize and just think about what life's about. And I needed to be far enough away from normal life to do that. So I started to do that every year. And one year I thought, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro, that sounds interesting. And it was, what, what's great about Mount Kilimanjaro is it's, it's the highest freestanding mountain in the world, well over 19,000 feet at its summit, but there's no technical climbing. Mm -hmm. I'm a chicken and it scares the heck out of me to be like hanging off ropes or stuff. I'm not doing any of that stuff. <laughs> Mount Kilimanjaro is just a hike. It's hot, it's hard because it's so, it's such high altitude. So it's physically challenging, but there's nothing scary about it. And I don't need to do anything scary at all. I'm not up for scary. So that's why I did it the first time. I did it the second time because I, I did the second time with my daughter. Um, and my daughter and I every year try to go away somewhere and do some kind of a father-daughter trip where we can just be together, just the two of us. And she started to got, got into hiking. So she and I, we, 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 uh, we hiked the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu one year. Yes. And we've done a lot of other hiking and other kinds of events with just the two of us. So she wanted to go to Kilimanjaro. And when your 29-year-old daughter still wants to go with you places, you go wherever she wants to go. That's exactly right. So, okay, uh, David Friedman, author of Culture by Design, talk just briefly about your third book that is uh, out. Yes, my third book is really an update to the second book. So Culture by Design, my first book, fundamentally different, was about the things we had done in our company. It was never written as a how-to manual. So Culture by Design, my second book, was written as a how-to manual. This is how you do it. My third book is the second edition of Culture by Design. And so maybe it's two and a half books. But the purpose of when I wrote that was reflecting on the pandemic and this new world that we're all in of remote workers. And the question that I hear from so many CEOs is, wow, this stuff is great, but does this apply to, or how does this apply to my new world where I got all these people working remotely? And what changes do I need to make to these concepts to accommodate that new world? So the second edition of Culture by Design uh, was written to update the original man manuscript and include content around a virtual workforce and how do these concepts apply. David, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Your URL for people to uh, click into, please. Place to go is culturewise, that's the word culture and then wise like an owl, W-I-S-E, culturewise.com. Thank you, David. And thank you for listening in CEOs today with David Friedman. 
And uh, we look forward to having you join us on our next podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. If you'd like to hear more from our premium coaches, faculty thought leaders, and guest speakers, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or Spotify. Your feedback is very important to us. So please leave us a review. See you next time. And remember, making a difference together, that's Gravitas Impact. Thank you.